How's everyone doing this morning? Great. Ready to enjoy the day? Ready to listen to the best sermon you've heard all week? Uh, well, as you know, last week we started a new kind of four-week series through our core values, taking a pause from going through a book of the Bible kind of exegetically, looking at just kind of recasting who we are. And the reason that we're doing this is because uh, if you're a member of the church, you know that when we had a membership class or uh, Phil and Melody for you guys who had the, the newer membership model, which is more of a full long dating experience, um, we had kind of seven core values that were these really sexy words that were joined together perfectly. Uh, I mean, it was awesome. They were really well formulated. The problem was you couldn't remember them. <laughs> so if, the reason that we are going through these core values is because we've condensed them into four. Uh, that, you know, as actually the exercise that we did, Will and I asked, hey, what's the Mountain Church about? And these four came up again and again and again with different people. Uh, God's word, the Holy Scriptures, the gospel, community, and mission. Uh, so that our other core values are kind of being grouped under those. We're not changing who we are. Uh, we're just hopefully changing a little bit of the way we describe ourselves. So that's it's easier, number one, to describe and easier to remember. Make sense? Cool. So uh, we also, uh, Kelly, as you guys know, has a really gift in graphics. So I'm just really tooting her horn this morning. But uh, I believe it'll be up on the page, Carrie. We have a little vision frame that we've created that is the framework of our church that kind of lists how all of these relate together. Uh, that Will walked through last week. So I'm not a, a good of a teacher as Will in my clarity. So if you have any questions after I walk through this, uh, just go listen to the first like five minutes of last week's sermon and you'll probably get a much better idea. Uh, I was joking full earlier this week because we two weeks ago we were walking through this process and I described the vision frame uh, to Rebecca here and uh, she's like, oh, I, I still don't really get it. And then literally Will stood up and did the same thing. And she's like, oh wow, that makes perfect sense. It's like, we see here, someone has a gift of teaching and someone has a gift of talking, I guess. But <laughs> So when we talk about the Mountain Church, you know that we use the language of a gospel-centered family, uh, right? Hopefully that's one phrase that we should have down. We try to put it up every week, we are a gospel-centered family. And that only describes who we are, but it's also a way of describing our vision. Uh, because there's kind of a counterintuitive uh, concept throughout the New Testament and the kingdom. There's an upside-down area or aspect of it in which as you are a Christian, you are becoming who you are. Does that make sense? It shouldn't make perfect sense because I, don't, I still don't get it. It's just this, it's this concept of God calls us holy, right? But then he says, be holy. He says, you're righteous, but he says, train yourself in righteousness. So there's an, there's an idea of when you are called as a Christian, you are pure, you are holy, you are righteous. And yet the the work of a Christian is progressing in these ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're called holy, but it's becoming who you are. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in other words, since you have been called, walk in step with that. Be who you are, become who you are. So we describe ourselves as a gospel-centered family, but this is also who we want to be and become. Make sense? Uh, we are wherever we are in our communities. That's where the church is. The church is not a building, it's a people. Uh, and we exist, you can see, I think it's on the right, your right, correct? Our mission statement. So we, at least, I think a great way to learn about this every week is we've included this little box on the bottom. And if you'd like, you can take notes if that's the way you learn, if it's just gonna help you every week to just stare at this the whole time. Uh, However you can get this ingrained in, we just we want this to be easy to, to remember and describe. Make sense? 
Okay, so who we are. A gospel-centered family, what we exist to do. We are a, a, a gospel-centered family who exists to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches. Okay? And those three things haven't changed either. That's, that's how we uh, describe our mission statement, the what. Uh, this comes from Acts 14.21. This is, we see a natural progression happening in the scriptures. As the gospel is preached, disciples are made, churches are planted. It seems really simple, but that's, I think that's what we see in Acts, Right? If you're not familiar with Acts, this is what we see in Acts. Uh, Luke records, after Paul and Barnabas left Lystra, they came to Derby in Acts 14.21. When they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel or proclaimed it, they heralded it, they announced it to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. So in other words, as the gospel is proclaimed and preached, disciples were created, they're made. That's how disciples are made, by re- responding to the gospel in faith and repentance. Disciples are made by applying the gospel to all of life. And as this happens, churches are planted. So uh, it's kind of confusing, I think, in, in one sense to talk about planting churches because in, in, in reality, what we are doing is planting the gospel and the gospel creates churches. Uh, but this is, this is the way we want to describe ourselves, preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches. And we think this is a, a healthy church will be doing this. At least this, this is how we describe ourselves as doing this. Uh, we don't want to exist as an end to ourselves. We don't want to make the logo or the ego or the name of the Mountain Church great. We want to make Jesus great. We want to see this area of the Puget Sound, uh, surrounding areas, saturated with gospel-centered churches. And this, can, I don't think, can be done all on our own. We need new churches. We need to revive churches uh, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples for God's glory and for the joy of those around us. Uh, so one call that I have in this is whether or not you feel called to plant a church, right? Like right now you're saying, hey, Daniel... I- you want to plant churches, I'm your guy, or we're your couple. Send us out next week even. Let's have a commissioning service. Send us to Kent, we're going to start a church. How many of you guys are like, right now, that's you? Right? None of us. I don't feel called to go to Kent. Okay, that's why I'm here. <laughs> but we all, have a, we all have a part to play in planting churches. Okay, we might not all be lead church planters, but we all have a part to play in planting churches. Uh, helping each other in discipleship, praying for God to develop leaders in our midst, giving generously to the work of the church to train leaders and send out teams to plant churches. So I want, to, I want us to see this as a team effort, not just for a select few, quote-unquote, elite. As you guys have seen in me, that's not the true. That's not the case. <clears throat> our strategy for accomplishing this, the, the how. How are we going to be a gospel-centered family seeking to accomplish this mission? We'll describe last week. There's two ways we have primarily described this. Two wings we fly on. And you want to think about bird? You want to think, please don't do that, Stephanie. Uh, think about a train on two rails that we run on. It is two, I mean, main things, right? Number one is Sunday, Sunday gatherings, which we call this place or this time together. And two, gospel communities. Okay, hopefully in two weeks from now, you guys will all be saying that much louder and clearer. Amen? Amen? Okay. If not, we'll just have to have Will come back up and do a couple things again. And uh, The why. What are the reason? What's the motive? And this is why we're talking about our core values. This is our, our motive. If we're going to be a gospel-centered family, if we want to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches, what do we have to cling to and cherish and value? There's four primary things. Uh, God's word. That's what we looked at last week. That's what Will's sermon was on. I, if you haven't listened to the sermon, you haven't taken time to listen to it, I would encourage you to go back and listen. I just, just laid the foundation of who we are as a church. 
So, Will, thank you for your message and for your clarity on that. Uh, today we're talking about the gospel, what we'll be focusing on today. And, and we can't be a gospel-centered family without the gospel, right? Uh, the difference, I think, between the scriptures and the gospel is the gospel is that, the key, that transformative piece, uh, where it, it takes God's word from being a, a book of rules or a book of heroes that we have to emulate to being a transformative story about Jesus Christ. Okay, so we want to be devoted to this, but we want to be centered on the gospel. Right? In other words, we don't want to be really committed to this and then miss Jesus, who's like the point. <laughs> right? You guys with me? Yes. So that's why we want to be centered on the gospel. We want to be intaking God's word and proclaiming God's message in the gospel. We want Jesus to be the center. We want Jesus to be lifted up. The last two core values are community and mission. And that's over the next two weeks, we'll be talking about those. Uh, lastly, we've come to the question in our framework of when. And that gets at the, the measurables, right? Like if this is our vision, how do we know that we're accomplishing it? So that we can refocus on things or look at what we need to do differently, what we're doing well. And we're looking at two primary questions that we are answering or asking when it comes to the measurables. Number one, what does it look like and what does it sound like? So every week as we've been going through these core values and as we go through these core values, we'll be looking at the kind of application, practical uh, practices of if we're going to value the gospel, what is it going to look like and sound like? So every week we're going to hopefully be getting really practical with that uh, at the end of our our sermons. Uh, but before we jump into that practicality, what does it look like, sound like, I, I think it would be good for us to be clear about what the gospel is, right? So what I would like to do now is, is form a line starting here, and one by one, we can come up and give our definition of what the gospel is and critique each other. Oh, God. So starting in, starting in the back, Aaron, why don't you make your way up? I don't want to. <laughs> oh, Stephanie's first? <laughs> Uh, one of the clearest definitions of what I found in the scriptures is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And although uh, this, these, these core values are going to be more topical, which, which uh, you will see I struggle with uh, because I, I think it's just harder to do. But uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be spending probably the majority of our scripture time in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll have other scriptures that we'll look at as we go through this. But 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through... 11. I mean, the gospel is all over our pages of the New Testament, but here he lays it out so clearly and succinctly. Um, just I, I wanted to start here. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and the 12, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called, because I have persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not me, but the grace of God that worked within me. So whether it was they or I, so we preach, and so you believed. So number one, what, what is the gospel? 
Well, the word gospel means good news, and it's good news about Jesus. So fundamentally, what is the gospel? The gospel is about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. The good news that Jesus, had, what he's accomplished by dying on the cross, as Paul says there, and what he has accomplished through raising from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I, I thought it was interesting as I was preparing for this, how Paul repeats in accordance with the scriptures back to back in verses three and four, which I think gets at the, the reality of what we talked about last week, the importance of being devoted to the word and Paul's uh, desire to be committed to the word and how the whole story of the Bible uh, is one big story. Uh, the gospel is good news because of the reality of our fallen condition, the reality of, of who we are and our predicament, our rebellion before a just and loving God. The truth of God's word that I declare, we all like sheep have gone astray. From the beginning of our Bibles, we see that God creating everything good. He created a world that was uh, for flourishing, a perfect garden of peace and shalom. And yet Adam and Eve sinned. They did what sin can be referred to as preferring other things above God. They refused to trust that God had what was good for them and they decided to become their own gods. They decided for their own to decide what's between right and wrong. And because of this, everything broke. Relationships broke. Relationships between God and his creation broke. Relationships between God and his creatures broke. Relationship between uh, creatures and creatures broke. This is why, uh, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we, the creation is not in right relationship with itself. There's disease, there's disasters, there's famines, there's wars. The whole creation has been broken. This is why God's creatures are broken. We have a broken relationship with God. We no longer run to him. We hide in shame. We don't trust in his goodness. This is why we have broken relationships with each other. This is why there's blame shifting. This is why there's abuse and rape and slander and manipulation and gossip. This is why instead of loving one another as God has loved us, we use others. Are we're used by others. We are broken within ourselves. Our minds are broken. This is why we experience depression, anxiety, and other mental illness. We age. We experience acne <laughs> and pain. And the Bible is clear that all humanity and all creation is in need of restoration and renewal. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to reconcile all things to himself. This is exactly what Paul says in Colossians. He says that through Christ, that God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the gospel. It's, it's cosmic, it's personal. It's universal and individual. Make sense? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that in accordance with the scriptures, Christ died for our sins, he was buried. He also says that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them were still alive. In other words, you want to know that this really happened? There's people that can tell you about it because they're still alive. So the gospel is not only a truth about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's a story about Jesus. It's, I think, historically true, like it really happened. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news that Jesus really died. He really rose again. He really forgives sinners. And when the Bible describes the gospel like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Colossians, he describes what Christ has already done. I don't think we can miss that piece because this is the reality that makes Christianity so unique and different. This is what makes the gospel so unique and different. Other religions, and I know I'm, I'm generalizing here, 
but other religions can basically be boiled down to one, to one primary message or theme or thought. You obey, you are accepted. You follow these rules, this deity, this thing, whoever is that all creator will accept you. In other words, obey these rules, live by this certain code, don't do this, do these things. If you want purpose, happiness, and meaning in life, you have to do these things. But the gospel is so unique because it describes what Jesus has already done, right? Uh, we, we've talked about this before, but in the gospel it says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. In religion, excuse me, did I say the gospel? Okay, in religion it says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. In the gospel it's, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's a completely inside-out way of, of looking at things. That's completely different than other religions. You guys understanding what I'm, what I'm putting down? And I think this is a really helpful way of, of describing the gospel. When I talk about the gospel, this is how I like to describe it, as being unique. It's a different way to live. It's not religion. It's not irreligion. It's totally different. And it's life-changing. It's freeing. It's compelling, I think. I think it's so different than other religions that it shouldn't even be called a religion. This is why when people ask me, uh, are you pretty religious? I say no. I hate religious. Well, no, I, I don't say those words, but I, I don't like religion. <laughs> What's helpful as I've shared the gospel in this way is that oftentimes when I'm speaking with someone about Jesus, they have these misconceptions or ideas about church as being a religion. So when I'm sharing the gospel and I talk about how the gospel is not a religion, in a sense, I'm coming alongside them and affirming that what they might be experienced or thought or conceived as being true about Christianity is actually not true. Amen. Does that make sense? Uh, the third way, and this is why we describe ourselves as being gospel-centered. This is what we want to get at. It's that being in the center can refer to being in the middle of two extremes. So, so we're, not, we're not religion, we're not an irreligion. Something completely different. The gospel is not irreligion, on the other hand, relativism, that says you can be your own savior and lord, you can determine your own right from wrong, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live, as long as you're, quote, a good person. Anyone ever heard that? I think it's like the major religion of this day, actually, uh, or major belief thought system. So we want the gospel, not irreligion, our religion at the center of our church. So number one, the gospel is good news about Jesus, what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is a good news that is true, it really happened. Uh, number three, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And it's interesting that Paul is reminding Christians about the gospel. Isn't it? He's telling them that you have past received it, and it brought salvation. Paul says to the church in Rome, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. For everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God. But notice also that he says that you're standing in the gospel. So I preached it to you, which is past. You received it. But present tense, in which you stand. Now, I used to think that the gospel was just that thing at the front end of a Christian's life, like the door that you walked in, and then you're a Christian. But then it's up to you to like work really hard and obey, and that's how you mature as a believer. Right, I used to think that the gospel was like the first step in a stairway of truths that, okay, I stepped on that first step, but now I've got to do these other things to mature as a Christian. But what I think this verse shows us is the gospel is the hub. The gospel is what we move deeper into. We never move on from the gospel. 
we move deeper into it. He says, and you're standing in it and you're being saved. Now, we don't understand this to mean that you lose your salvation and you're like continually needing to be saved in that sense. But Paul is teaching us that the gospel isn't just for bringing someone to faith. The gospel isn't just for not yet believers. The gospel is for believers and it's transformative. That's the fourth thing I would say the gospel is. The gospel is transformative. It creates a new way of life. It changes things. I know every illustration talking about the gospel or relating it to God, it will somehow break down at some point. So please bear with me. But I was thinking about this illustration this week. That the gospel would be like if you can imagine yourself as a, a young homeless child on the street. Don't have food, don't have a family, don't have a place to live, don't have riches, don't have education, you have nothing. But you see there's this amazing family, this great dad, he's a perfect dad, loves his children perfectly and completely. He has all the money in the world, he has this huge house, he has the best food. He's a joy to be in his family. And he comes to you on the street. Just imagine yourself as a, as a homeless child. He takes you from the street and he places you in his house. He puts his clothes on you. He gives you his last name. He says, I'm going to share my inheritance with you. You're going to enjoy fellowship with me forever. Now, I know it's going to break down at some point, but this is, this is in a sense what has happened in the gospel. We were lost orphans without meaning, without purpose, without any kind of uh, eternal riches. And by grace, God has pulled us out of our condition and placed us in his family. He has given us his name. He has adopted us. We are now his children that he calls our sons and daughters. Now, when we think about this homeless child to what he became, would his life look a little different? You might even say you wouldn't even recognize him, right? This is what has happened in the gospel with us. The gospel is just not a little ticket that we get out of hell, this scary eternal place. Like the gospel should change everything. Our identity, our purpose, our joy, our hope, our confidence, our family allegiance and ties, who we love, what our source is. Amen? So the gospel is the hub. The gospel changes everything. But the reality is, if, if you are a believer in here and you believe the gospel, you know that you don't always live out of that new identity, right? Because of our, our flesh, what the Bible describes our sinful nature, that it's not yet killed or done with yet we in a sense like to return to the streets we forget who we are we return to poverty we forget who our father is forget who our family is and we suffer for it we experience problems when we fail to believe and apply the gospel and you guys know that I love Tim Keller and I've used this quote before but I just think it's so he describes it in such a good way that I, I love reading it so Tim Keller says this, the main problem in the Christian life then is, not that we, is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of life. The gospel is not easily comprehended. Paul says that it is a truth that does its renewing work in us 
only as we understand it in all of its truth. So all of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not, quote, get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is continual rediscovery of the gospel. The discovery of new implication or application of the gospel, seeing more of its truth, is an important stage of any renewal. This is true of any individual or any church. This is why we want to be centered on the gospel. And if you have any questions on that, I would love to talk with you further about it. This is why I would argue that most of our problems as believers have a root in unbelief, a failure to grasp, delight, or believe in the gospel. Does that make sense? I think it frees us too out of this, this legalistic religious mentality about all this work that we have to do. We, it, the work of being a Christian is identifying those areas of unbelief and driving the gospel deeper into our hearts for our joy and peace. If you want an example of this, you think that I'm off base on this, I would encourage you to look at Galatians 2 because we see this in Peter. And Paul gets right, like he opposes them to his face, he says in Galatians. In Galatians 2.11, it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Cephas is Peter, because he stood condemned. Right, that's some pretty strong language. It says, for certain men came from James and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's the phrase that we're getting at here. You are not in step with the truth of the gospel. The New American Standard Bible says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. The NIV translation says, when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So in other words, when you disbelieve the gospel, you get out of line. You're in sin. And what we see here in Peter is that he was acting like a racist. He was hanging out with Gentiles, but when other Jews came around, he separated himself from those Gentiles. What's a key to destroying racism? The gospel. Knowing that in Christ, God has unified all people to himself, every tribe, nation, and tongue in one multi-ethnic family. The word that Paul uses in the Greek to behave, uh, you're not in line with the truth of the gospel, gets that walking behavior, gets that right manner of living. So the truth of the gospel to be applied to every area of thought and life. We also see this in Philippians 1.27. If you're curious, it says, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Do you guys see where this concept and idea is coming from? Why we want to be centered on the gospel? Is that making sense? Some head nods? Somewhat? Uh, Colossians 1 says the gospel is to bear fruit in our life. Colossians 1.3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have indeed heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, he says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So what Paul's saying is the gospel has come to you just as it's spreading throughout the whole world. It's bearing fruit, it's multiplying, the gospel is going forth. But notice what Paul says in verse 6. It's come to the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. 
Again, he's writing to Christians in Colossae. And the gospel is to be bearing fruit in their life. How many of you would say this is kind of a new concept? Hopefully it's not too new if you've been in the mountain church every, for a period of time. Because this is what we want to be about. This is why we, we center our sermons, our songs, communion. Everything is to be about the gospel, rem- reminding ourselves of the gospel. Amen? Amen? This is the key to renewal and, and change. So the gospel is about Jesus. We believe it's true. It's a power of salvation. It's transformative. And we want to fight to believe the gospel in all aspects of our life. This is why we need each other to help in this. Uh, so let's look at the next question. What does it mean to value the gospel in the life of our church? So with this understanding of the gospel, what does it mean to value it? Anyone have any ideas they want to throw out? (laughs) Study it. I've got five things here. Um, and there's, there's more, of course, but I think this is, these are five things that what that means to value the gospel. Number one, it needs to be central. The word center can not only mean in, between, in the middle of two extremes, it can mean primary importance, essential, principal, most pivotal. Pivotal, a source from which something originates. In other words, we can never move on from it. We must continually place the gospel at the center of our church and our life. So to value the gospel, you must not move out of line with it. We must not deviate from the truth of the gospel. We want to live in a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel. Number two, it needs to be functional. We can't just talk about it. It needs to actually be functional in our life. We know the gospel is a living power that that continually bears fruit in our life. Just as a crop or a tree would grow and increase and dominate every area of our life, this is what we want the gospel to do. We want it to be functional. And and just to give some examples of what this means, how how does the gospel affect the way that we view uh, discouragement? Family, our sex. What does it mean to, have, to believe the gospel when someone cuts you off on the highway? When we're talking about functional gospel, this is what we're talking about. It's not just a theoretical or a theological or just up here. It's actually functioning in our life. I was reading an article about this, and, and I just wanted to list a couple things that he talks about. Uh, number one, how does the gospel affect the way you approach discouragement? So when a person is depressed, the moralist, the person who believes in religion, the legalist, will say this thing. You are breaking the rules. You need to repent. It's all about rules, right? On the other hand, the relativist, the the irreligious person, will say something like this. You just need to love and accept yourself. So you see how different those two are? How is the gospel unique in that? Without the gospel, superficialities will be addressed instead of the heart. The moralist will simply work on behavior. The relativist will simply work on emotions. If we're talking about depression or discouragement in which there's no psychological basis for depression, the gospel leads us to examine ourselves and say, something in my life has become more important. I have a functional savior. Does that make sense? I've started to to believe a works-based righteousness. The gospel leads us to repentance. 
and trusting that Jesus is better. And it will change our heart, not merely our, our behaviors or our emotions. It will change us from the inside out. How does the gospel affect the way that we view sexuality? And if you've grown up in church or are familiar with church, you know that there's kind of a, a, and it can fall into this, a kind of religious, legalistic perspective that says, don't ever talk about sex, right? That'll make people uncomfortable. Sex is dirty and gross. It should be avoided at all costs. It leads to sin. There's even a joke that I have. Uh, I don't, actually, I don't. Yeah, thank you, Will. <laughs> the irreligious person sees sex simply as an appetite that needs to be uh, gratified. But in the gospel, it shows that sexuality is to reflect the self-giving love of Christ. How does the gospel affect our family? How does the gospel affect marriage? The moralist can make you a slave to your parental expectations. Uh, the person, the irreligious person can say there's, there's no need for family. As long as, it, as long as they're not fulfilling my needs and my desires, I don't really need them. Whereas the gospel frees us from making us a slave to our parents. It points us to how God is the ultimate father, so we will neither be too dependent nor too hostile towards our parents. Number three, I think, to value the gospel, it has to be clear. We have to communicate it in an understandable way. And, and there's a book uh, that I have up here, a, a number of resources on the gospel that have been helpful for me, a book called Gospel Fluency, that I think is really helpful and practical in this way, describing what the gospel is and what it is not. And I, I, I have to say that uh, the two, three years that we've been in Des Moines sharing the gospel, people think they know what Christianity is about. People think they know what we believe, but people have no idea what the gospel is. And the more that we can help people see the uniqueness and the beauty of the gospel, I think that's success right there. We have to be clear. Number four, to value the gospel, we celebrate it. We talk about this. This is why we sing songs about the gospel. It's why we take communion and, and our sermons are seeking to be centered on Jesus Christ. To be celebrated, it looks like members of the Mountain Church are excited about the gospel, and it's a, it's a contagious passion of, and joy, not only to know more of it, but to share it with others, believers and not yet believers. And five, lastly, uh, which will lead us into our application point, to value the gospel, we are going to be changed by it. We are going to be becoming a church that continually humbles ourselves as we think about the gospel and the fact that God's grace towards us is by sheer grace. There's no deserving or earning on our part. We are changed by it as we become a church that grows in generosity as we think about the gospel and God's lavish generosity that he has shown us towards us in Jesus Christ. We are becoming a church that grows out of self-centeredness and we are giving ourselves to others as we think about how Jesus came to give himself on behalf of others. We are growing as a church in patience as we explore the gospel and apply to all of life as we realize and think about God's patience that he has shown towards us in Jesus Christ. We grow and become a church that loves one another in our city as we think and ponder the gospel and, and see how much God has loved us in sending his only son, Jesus, to save us and who loves our city. He weeps and broken over the city, his compassion for the people. We grow as we become and live a radical lifestyle that demands an explanation of the gospel. Right? If you were to look at that poor homeless boy who's, who has a new family, new clothing, new everything, new name, 
people who knew him before would say, what happened to you? You are different. His life would demand an explanation. And by God's grace, that is what we want our lives to do. We want to live in such a way where we are so patient, we are so joyful, we care about others so deeply. When the city wants volunteers and those to serve, they call us because they know we care about the city and we want it to flourish. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. You know people that are like that? I don't, apart from Christ. Like those are be some weird people. Like I want to have a reputation amongst our church that, oh yeah, you guys are the ones who always throw these awesome block parties and you care about the neighborhood. You want to get people together. People in my neighborhood don't want to do that. We want to be a church that really cares about the people and the friendships. I was thinking about this this weekend as Will and I have been talking about Jehovah's Witness and interacting with them and uh, Will's been looking at you know uh, apologetics and defending the faith and, and interacting with those people. I've thought about, I've never had a, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who has, who has evangelized to me, given me a track, who has then pursued me after that. Have you? Nope. Right, when, when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon shares their faith with me, they hand me a track and I've never believed or been converted. At least I don't think I have. Uh, <laughs> and when, when I've rejected them, they go to the next house. They move on. And what that has showed me is they don't really care about me, right? And maybe you guys, maybe some of you haven't felt like this. What does it look like to care about someone that even if they reject our message, we still love them? That's unique, isn't it? Who does that? Yes, amen. Okay, let's get down to the nitty gritty, shall we? Thank you, Will, for showing us this. What does it look like, sound like? This is teacher terms, super helpful. I oftentimes, you guys know, I get really dreamy, visionary. Will is awesome. God has placed him in my life and in this church for a reason. This executive, administrative. Okay, how do we get from here, Daniel, to here? Let's do this, right? Will, if I miss a couple things, just yell them out to me, right? What does it look like, sound like, to value the gospel? Right, these are the practices. And when we're talking about these what this means is if you're not doing these things, it doesn't mean you just need to do them like out of shame or, or guilt. We're, we're getting at these because we think out of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, that these are the fruits of it. Does that make sense? So if you don't see the fruit, you don't say, you stupid branch, why aren't you producing fruit? You've got to look at the tree. Where are the roots? Is it healthy? What's going on here? Make sense? Number one, what does it look like? Falling off the transformative piece, it looks like change. There should be an outward appearance. This looks at a change in, in these areas. Your identity, the way you describe yourself, your affections, your desires, your beliefs, your behaviors, your habits, your schedules, your attitudes, your passions, your hobbies, your free time, your vacations, your rest, what you value, all of those things, all-encompassing. Number two, it looks like you want to share it with others. You want to share with others how the gospel is bearing fruit in your life. You want to share it with coworkers and neighbors. You're always prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, 1 Peter 3.15. You want to share it with anyone everywhere you work, play, learn, and live. Not in a shove it down your throat type of way, but in a way of the gospel is changing me and let me share that with you. 
think it looks like confessing sin to your coworkers when you get short and impatient and you show them the uniqueness and the beauty of the gospel. Number three, I think it looks like becoming a regular at a local business and really caring about the servers that are there. Amen. Tipping well. <laughs> yes. Uh, our friend Carrie Jester says, if, if you're going to pray before your meal, you better leave a good tip. Right, Carrie? If you're, gonna, if you're cheap and you don't want to tip well, don't even pray. <laughs> she's just really damaging the reputation of Christ. Uh, number four, you're consistently looking for ways to apply it to all of life. And this, I think, plays itself out in studying the gospel. You're listening to sermons. You're reading books on the gospel. I've got a whole stack right there. I've done the work for you. You can just uh, take a snapshot of one. You can even take one and just let me know what one you took, and I can rebuy it. Uh, you're listening to lessons and teachings on, on man and God. You want to study the scriptures. I think it looks like you're growing in close relationship with people in your church. You're longing to be with your church. You're setting aside time for your church. For those who has placed, for those who have, God has placed directly in front of you, I think it looks like people who don't know Jesus feel welcomed and a part of the community, part of your gospel community. People in the gospel community care about those who are not yet believers. Looks like uh, not yet believers, seekers, and skeptics can feel like they have their questions answered, and asked, and taken seriously among us. What does it sound like? Number one, I think it sounds like working into every conversation. And I forgot to mention this on the front end, but when we're going through these look like, sound like, uh, I think we're serious about these. And, and we hope that this would become realities in our life. Uh, like even last week when Will was talking about how do, what does it look like and sound like to value the scriptures and how we'll be talking about it, like even right after the gathering, we'll be talking about God's word and how it affected us, how it changed us. I was, I was having a conversation here on the front row, and right after Will said that, I thought it was, it wasn't, it was, it was sad, but it made me chuckle, just like, we really are serious about this, is two people started talking about the World Cup, like right away. And it's not that you cannot talk about the World Cup, but what, what are you most excited to talk about? What does that reveal? Does that make sense? Anyone? Okay. So you're working in a conversation, uh, you're fluent in the gospel, you're able to apply it to every person and situation at any time. It's natural for you to talk about Jesus to those who do and don't know Jesus. Number two, it sounds like being able to clearly communicate the uniqueness of the gospel and how it's different from the major religions of the world. Number three, I think it looks like communi consistent communication that's not only loving, but truthful. You care about the other person, so you want to speak truth to them. You're not enslaved by being a people pleaser. Uh, but at the same time, you actually love the person. You don't care more about uh, being right and true than the other person so that you're always just hammering them with truth. There's a truth in love. Number four, it looks like, sounds like, excuse me, we're using God's word to speak to each other. We're singing to each other. Paul says in Ephesians 5.19, Five nineteen. Uh, you're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks, always giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Practically, I think this looks like sending psalms to one another when we're discouraged, singing to our children when they're disobedient, <laughs> singing when we're frustrated, 
I guess I have a little more time. Um, I wanted to share this story. Uh, I'm stumbling over my words right now. I apologize. This story comes from, I was asked to speak at a Young Lives retreat, which is a retreat for teen moms in the, in the kind of umbrella of Young Life, if you guys are familiar with that program. Uh, it was basically a, a teen moms that were graduating this program that were no longer teens anymore. So uh, the, guests, the speaker asked me to come in and talk about the church and talk about uh, marriage and family. So the first night, I wasn't giving a talk. Uh, it was the director of the Greater Highline Tequila Young Life Director who was speaking. And she just went around and asked, how are you guys doing to the, to the moms? And the moms went around on a scale of 1 to 10 and just described, this is how I'm doing. And every, every one, even the leaders that were there, described how they were based on their circumstances. So here I am, you know, I'm starting to see this. I'm getting, man, look at these women, you know, putting their faith in their circumstances. You know, Jesus is so much better. It's like, it was just, I felt like God was just priming me for this message the next morning. Like, thank you, God. Well, the next morning comes, and, and uh, Addison didn't sleep well at all in our hotel room. Um, Stephanie had to leave early to go help the ladies get set up. Uh, so I wasn't sleeping well. I, was, I get a little cranky and frustrated when I don't sleep a lot. Uh, and Addison woke up like normal. She had pooped in the morning. She always, she's pretty regular in the morning. She poops. So I went to go change her. I got, a, I got a diaper, but I couldn't find wipes. Come to find out, I didn't have wipes. And changing a diaper without wipes is pretty lame. <laughs> so I got a bunch of toilet paper, uh, just cleaning her up. Actually, before I got the toilet paper and I was trying to find the wipes, I had kind of taken the diaper off um, and removed it and thrown it away. And I was trying to find these wipes. And I come back to Addison, and she had pooped and peed and just sitting there. And this is on the floor of the host, this hotel room. And I'm thinking, gosh, great. Like, it's one thing, it's my own house, but it's not even my house. So then I get more toilet paper. I'm trying to clean it up. Uh, and now I'm starting the bath because she's just sat in her own poop and pee. I'm starting to get frustrated. At the same time, now Avery is woken up and she's crying. I go over to Avery, blow out. <laughs> poop is all up her back. It's all in her onesie. It's all in her sleep sack. And now I'm getting more frustrated. I just, and then it was like in the moment, just by his grace uh, and his patience and kindness with me, he reminded me, Daniel, aren't you talking about joy in Christ this morning and not in circumstances? And it was awesome because in the moment I just started singing. And it was like everything, even more frustrated things that happened, like not having wipes, not being able to find things where they were in the diaper bag, it made me happier for some reason. Because every little frustration that was happening, I was using as an opportunity to thank God that he doesn't change. That regardless of my circumstances, he is good. I don't know if I would have had that if the morning would have went well for me, right? Like, and I'm so thankful even for the suffering that I've experienced as a Christian because it's reminded me of this. Right? If I just have this easy-go-lucky life, will I ever be tested in that? And will God ever reveal that to me? I haven't realized the power of singing the gospel, I think, before even this year. So I would encourage you, when you're frustrated, when your child is disobedient, when you're having a fight with your wife or your girlfriend or whoever you're committed to, your friend, start singing. It's going to be weird. I know it. It might even frustrate the person. Like, really, we're having a fight and you're starting to sing? Come on, dude. <laughs> 
lastly, I think what this looks like is helping each other with the fruit to root exercise. What are we believing and being able to explore the deeper issues of our sin? If we're noticing in our life that we're getting frustrated really easily, we're crabby, we're not gracious, we're not generous, we're not kind, it's really hard to try to change that behavior. And say, well, I just want to try to be more kind. I mean, it, it doesn't really work. But if we get at the, the root, what is this coming from? How, why is this fruit absent in my life? What am I believing? What am I trusting in? What am I cherishing? It's v- profoundly helpful. And if you're struggling with this, ask someone who's close to you. They probably have a better understanding of <laughs> the roots than maybe you do. Right? A lot of times I have even blind spots to this. I need Stephanie and Will and those who are in my gospel community to remind me of this. This is the beauty of being in community. Amen? Anything I missed, Will? I think this is the reason that oftentimes, uh, when, even when I'm discouraged after a sermon that I preach, that I think, well, that was lame. Like, this whole section back here kind of zoned off for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I get back here and I sing, and it reminds me of, and your acceptance is rooted in Christ. And no matter of the circumstances, no matter what fruit you're seeing, how powerful your messages are, if you're faithful to God's word, I can do something with that. Sing to me, respond to me. And that's what I want to do right now. I want to sing together to God as a church, thanking God for who he is, rejoicing in the gospel, celebrating the gospel. And and by God's grace, I pray that we will be a gospel-centered church. We will not move on from it. If you have questions about the gospel, you want to learn more about it, I would love to talk with you. Uh, Please look at those books over there. Uh, Those all have been impactful in my life. If you want to take one, please do. And I've run out of things to say, so let's pray.